0: So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time, and for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 140 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, September 27th. I'm your host Allison Gill,
2: and I'm Pete Struck. We have a great show for you with lots to cover, including Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss filing a notice that Rudy Giuliani has failed to respond to a court order, along with Rudy's lawyer suing him for 1.4 million dollars. We also now have multiple witnesses disputing the Jim Jordan IRS whistleblowers in the Hunter Biden debacle and the New York Attorney General's opposition to a Trump organization fraud trial delay.
0: Yes, and we also have news about the House Republicans receiving a brief on a series of Biden documents from the National Archives that turned up, you guessed it, nothing. And I'm really excited, Pete, because we're going to be joined by legal fellow and courts correspondent for Lawfare a Georgian who has been doggedly reporting on all things Fulton County and other stuff as well, Anna Bauer.
2: Yeah, she's amazing.
0: She's truly, truly incredible. We're going to be talking about the Cheeseboro motions to dismiss count nine of his, along with his motion to suppress search warrant evidence, and his push to interview grand jurors. We'll also discuss the Clark, Jeffrey Clark, and the fraudulent elector removal hearings they want to remove to federal court from Georgia State Court. And we're going to talk about the sort of flipping of Linwood, and then some conflicts of interest filings. But first, we want to thank some new patrons. You make the show go, so thank you so much to Christine Berner, Jay Brown, Vanessa M, Kathy Freeman, John J Keepers, L M N O P, Jesse Shira, and Jean Jarvis. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you want to become a patron, you'll get these episodes early, and you'll get them ad free as well as access to the bonus weekend episodes. You get twice as many episodes. So you can sign up at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D.
2: And with that, let's welcome courts correspondent for Lawfare, Anna Bauer. Huge fan, uh, Anna, of your work and certainly have been a fan of Lawfare for a long, long time. And they're fortunate to have you covering not only Fulton County, but all across the, the, the various sort of legal trials that are going on in and around Trumpland. So thank you so much for joining us. I, I guess I first want to start out by going down to Fulton County and some of the early things going on with uh, Kenneth Chesburg. Can you sort of walk us through – he's got a number of uh, motions in. Can you kind of walk us through the things that are pending from his camp down there at Fulton County?
3: Of course. And thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm a big fan of the show. So I'm really happy to be on and joining you guys today. Uh, so, Ken Chesbro, what is going on with the cheese? Because uh, <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, he has a trial that is scheduled for October 23rd with, along with Sidney Powell. So, the motions are coming fast and furious in, in Fulton County with Ken Chesbro and Sidney Powell as well. But it's mostly been Chesbro who's fi- been filing things. Uh, so, just to run you through an idea of what some of the pending motions are, and we haven't had any rulings on these from Judge McAfee, who's the presiding judge in the case. Uh, one is a uh, motion to quash the indictment. Of course, Ken Chesbro here, it's it's important to remind folks that he's not only charged with the, the overarching racketeering charge for joining an enterprise to overturn the 2020 election in Donald Trump's favor, but he's also charged with conspiracy to file false documents that's related to his alleged role as the architect of the fake electors plot to submit uh, an elect electoral slate to the archives and to the governor of Georgia and to other government bodies uh, claiming that, you know, the Trump electors were the duly elected and, and qualified electors from the state of Georgia when in fact they were not. Uh, so in order to, you know, get rid of those conspiracy to file false documents charges, Chesbro is is arguing that the electors, when they filed that document that said they were duly elected and qualified, they they weren't, you know, false. They 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 were actually saying that they weren't the electors from Georgia, but they were the Republican electors from Georgia. So he's trying to say that that wasn't a false statement because, you know, know, these folks really were these, uh, you know, Republicans were elected by the state party, under state law, you know, that's kind of how it works, is that uh, a few months before the election, the the candidates who are running for president, they will each have members from their party who are kind of appointed or nominated to be electors in the event that that person wins the popular vote in the state. And then, of course, you know, the Electoral Count Act specifies that on December 14th or whatever day is specified by Congress under the Constitution, those folks get together and then they uh, they send the electoral votes to the governor who pairs it with a certificate of ascertainment. Um, And then, you know, that is on January 6th when the joint session of Congress meets. Those are the certificates that are counted from the state of Georgia. So here they're saying what really matters is that they were appointed by the state party. And so that's why it's not a a fake uh, certificate. That, I think, is not going to be something that will be successful in part because the the certificate itself says nothing about qualifying the statement, right? It it literally says, we the undersigned being the duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president from the state of Georgia. They don't say anything about being the Republican electors from the state of Georgia. But it's not only that, it's it's also the case that, you know, they make this argument that uh, they point to these extra kind of, these extra legal statements that were made by David Schaefer at this December 14th, 2020 meeting uh, in which he says, you know, we're we're here in a contingent ca- capacity in case that litigation changes the outcome of the election. We're here just to preserve the rights of the Republican nominee electors. So they point to that. But the problem for Ken Chesbro is that he wrote a series of memos prior to December 14th, in which he makes it very clear that the intention of submitting these electoral documents was not just in a cont- contingent capacity. It was, in fact, to you know potentially convince Pence to count the uh, votes from the Republican electors in Georgia, even if there was no change because of litigation in Georgia. So I think that's really important, and and I think that this motion is one that i am am not convinced will be successful um but if you guys want to chime in before i move on to some of the other motions please do
0: well especially up against the fact that there were other states that put that contingency language in their certification like pennsylvania was like hey this is only if for some reason in the courts this is litigated and it's turned over and you need these slates by the drop dead date of December 14th, that's why we're signing this and sending this forward, not to say that we are the duly elected, you know, or, you know, appointed electors for the for the thing. So, you know, I, I, I don't think this is going to be successful either, because not only do we have the arguments that you've put forth, but you have other examples of states who did this other thing and put that contingency language in there and you put them next to each other. And it's there to me that's like no contest. So that's sort of probably I don't probably not even an argument that has to come up. But, you know, certainly one that uh, if I were a a lawyer, I (laughs) I'm weird, I would raise it. But, you know, that's just me. So, uh, yeah, I I, I don't think this is going to be successful. I don't think many of his motions are going to be successful. Of course, that doesn't preclude him from trying to file them anyway.
3: Right. And I think and, and so related to this motion that is about the fake electors, he also has this second motion that kind of makes a somewhat similar argument. But he's trying to uh, say that the indictment should be quashed because it, basically he's saying that the Electoral Count Act, preempts in any sort of state criminal prosecution that is based on the fake elector plot. He has this really complicated argument that I don't want to get too much in the weeds on here because I want to keep it uh, uh, understandable for folks. But um, it's basically he's trying to say like, you know, Georgia. he he argues that Georgia didn't meet what's called the safe harbor deadline, which is this deadline that's set out in the Electoral Count Act, and, and it's usually the kind of date uh, before the electors meet in December, uh, by which time the state is supposed to have certified its election results and have all pending litigation kind of resolved. Um, and so Chesbro is making this argument that because Georgia didn't meet its safe harbor or, or allegedly did not meet its safe harbor deadline in uh, December of 2020, that meant that you know all power reverted back to Congress. Georgia no longer had any power to have any say over you know who the electors would be, and it all you know just went to the two houses of Congress to decide. And that's why you know whatever happened after that safe harbor deadline, which was I believe December 8th of 2020. 20 um, at the time. Anything that happened after that, with the fake electors meeting and all of that. Uh, that was all, you know, under federal law. And it's something that the state can't now, you know, criminalize. It's something that I think they're probably filing this motion now because they want to be able to raise this argument later on before the jury. They they want to go into this, you know, uh, motion to dismiss hearing and have the state say, you know, this is a factual question for the jury and and that's for the jury to decide. and 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 then, you know, Hopefully, they'll have a better chance of having the judge later on then allow them to raise it because the state has said this is for a jury to decide. But on the law itself, I I really just don't think it's going to succeed because that's not really how preemption works. Like they, They make this argument that because the Electoral Count Act uh, has this statement about receiving certificates that pur- pur- purport to be electoral certificates, that that envis- envisions or, or, or anticipates that there could be you know multiple certificate electoral slates that are received by Congress. But just because the Electoral Count Act says that, it doesn't mean, in, in my view, that a state could not criminalize what it means to purport to send a certificate saying that you are the state's valid electors when you are in fact not, right? Mm-hmm. So so it doesn't seem to me that there's actually a conflict between the federal law and the state law here um, and the criminalization of what, what these electors did. Um, so I just really don't see how this argument that federal law should, you know, uh preempt or kind of uh supersede any state law uh will will succeed. It it just doesn't seem likely to me. But curious to hear your thoughts.
2: No, I mean look, I think that is absolutely I, I have some question about whether or not they're doing this because of the legal merits or two, just because it is an opportunity to throw crap against the wall and slow things down. Uh, I'm curious is, is is a lot of this coming out of Chesbro and not Powell only because he's better funded and or has better representation and, and Powell is kind of out there, you know, kind of on her own craziness? Or is that some sort of agreement that he is going to take the lead or just that he has potentially different arguments uh, and a better, ch- even however unlikely uh, that he still has a better chance of making these arguments than she does? Do you think there's any sort of uh, discussion or dialogue? It seems to me he didn't, doesn't want to be with her, but is stuck with her for the purpose of a speed of <laughs> trial. Um, I've
0: kind of seen but- that with Trump too, where he's like, people file motions and he's like, yeah, ditto, me too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if we'll see that with Powell, but, you know, who knows what their agreement is.
3: Right. So I think with Powell, part of it with these, because a lot of the Chesbro motions that relate to the fake electors plot, you know, those aren't going to apply to Powell as much because her case, even though they're both charged with the Rico conspiracy, um, her case is, 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 much more related to the Coffee County breach, which which Chesbro is not accused of separately uh, beyond the RICO uh, charge. So I think that she has had some motions coming in, um, you know, claiming that the breach in Coffee County was authorized, which I've you know done reporting on on what happened in Coffee County and. All of my reporting indicates that it very much was not authorized, but they seem to be arguing that it was. Um, she has, you know, a few motions that are coming in, but it, it just seems like Chesbro potentially does have a larger legal team, you know, uh, Sidney Powell's um only has one attorney who's working on the case. As far as I'm aware, I'm sure that he has associates who, um, you know, are working with him, but in terms of folks who are making appearances in court, it's only been Brian Rafferty for Sidney Powell. Whereas Chesbro has at least three attorneys who show up to every hearing. Um, and so it, it may be the, the funding aspect of it all. Um, I am not entirely sure it, and, and it may be, like I said that we, we see some more motions coming in from Powell, you know, this week or in the next few weeks uh, when some of these deadlines start to hit for getting pretrial motions in. But, uh, moving on to.
2: Uh, I, I, I want to take a quick diversion as long as we're talking about Sidney Powell okay. and voting stuff. Do you think mm-hmm. she, like, clearly the Coffee County stuff, but she was also involved in, you know, like, i in Antrim County up in Michigan, Maricopa County, and not just her, but people like Catherine Fries and Doug Logan. Do you think, I mean, one, do you think Fulton County's done? Like, they have indicted everybody they're going to indict. And then the second part of the question is, do you think there are folks like, you know, Michigan has indicted a bunch of local michigan republican party type folks but do you see other states bringing indictments specifically against sort of these national figures particularly Sidney powell but also those other i mean there were a group of and like patrick byrne flying all these folks or the around the feds
0: for that matter or the,
2: right or the feds for that matter do you think or have you heard anything in your reporting that there might be future state charges either in georgia or outside of georgia coming down for the sort of voting infrastructure tampering type stuff
3: Right. Uh, there could be in Georgia, but maybe not from Fonnie Willis's office. Uh, the GBI has been investigating the breach in Coffee County of voting systems there for, uh, I want to say, if not over a year, then, then it's coming up on a year now. Um, it has it seemed to be the case that, I mean, and again, you know, as we all know, what is happening publicly in investigation does not always reflect what is happening internally because there's just so much that the media doesn't know and that members of the public doesn't know because it's, it's very closed off from, from view. Um, but with that said, it it did seem for some time that the GBI was... Kind of slow walking that investigation. There wasn't a lot happening. Um, I I was uh, very regularly submitting open records requests down in Coffee County, um, and there wasn't a whole lot coming back. But right before the Fulton County indictments uh, came down, there there what seemed to be a little bit more activity going on down there. Um, uh, my uh, understanding from the open records request is that the GBI received some uh, search warrants. Um, they are sealed. So I don't know what they are for, but they seemed to be related to the Coffee County computer breach in 2021. Um, and they also appeared to have seized a computer that was used by the election supervisor who is now indicted in Fulton County, Misty Hampton. So, So that was, you know, some new movement. And there are people who were not indicted in Fulton County who were involved in that breach or allegedly involved in that breach that could potentially be indicted, maybe not in Fulton County, but, you know, by the GBI as a result of that investigation. So we will see in terms of you know other jurisdictions i really don't know but you make a great point that it it seems like there's so much more uh to this story of uh, a widespread and potentially coordinated plot to access voting machines in various states throughout the country um and i think that it has not received maybe as much attention as it should um I, i'm very curious to see if jack smith ultimately turns his focus to that. It seems like maybe they've been kind of, um, you know, asking some questions about it. There's been some recent reporting that they have been asking about the the plans to access voting machines, but uh, it's to be, you know, seen whether or not that's something that they expand the investigation even further um, to to focus on, because it may be that they think, you know, that that would be going uh, uh, too far in, in terms of scope with the special counsel's investigation.
2: Yeah, and, and one last quick follow-up on like GBI's jurisdiction. Would they typically, I mean, they operate throughout Georgia. Do they have the authority or where would they bring cases? In other words, can they go into county jurisdictions and bring cases there? Is that typically how it would work? That if they did find malfeasance or additional criminal wrongdoing, that they would bring that in Coffee County? Or what, what is their sort of entry into the state judicial system?
3: You know, it's a really good question. And I'm not entirely familiar with how the GBI tends to operate. But I, they, they got involved here, I believe it was because of uh, the Secretary of State's uh, office asked them to get involved after the um, breach became public. And so it, it it's it's not clear to me whether it's the kind of thing where, you know, they investigate and then it's the attorney general who seeks an indictment or whether it would be they then hand over, you know, everything to the Coffee County local district attorney. And, and then it's in that capacity that that someone would would uh, be indicted. So a uh, great question. And I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to it, but no, that's OK.
0: We do have to take a really quick break here and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk about. The other uh, Chesbro motions, we're going to talk about the the removal hearings. And then, of course, I want to ask you about Lynn Wood and maybe some if we have time to talk about conflicts of interest. But we need to take a quick break here. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money. That'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct.
4: I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica.
1: This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So
4: you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, If I lose sight of
1: you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Orb- Get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
2: All right, welcome back. We have some more patrons to thank. Thank you to Mark Sterling, Jay Kasler, Anita Savine, Ricky Martinez, Amanda Davis, Ralph Glidden, and Kathleen Horniak. Thank you all so much. You make this program go, and we simply couldn't do it without you, and so now let's back with Anna Bauer, a, uh, a correspondent for Lawfare and a expert on everything going on down in Georgia and generally around Trump world. And uh, I want to finish up. We were talking some about uh, Chesbro's various uh, motions, and we we took a little diversion into uh, GBI and other states. But so let's let's go back to Ken to the cheese. Where wh- what other motions is he? Yeah, is it cheese
0: it- or Ches? Because I call him Cheese Bro.
3: So I asked his attorneys about this. It is Ken Chesbro, but he his nickname um, because he's from Wisconsin, and his his longtime nickname from you know childhood and college was the Cheese. So uh, okay. uh, Chesbro, in terms of pronouncing his name, but nickname the Cheese. I'm a little Damn
0: disappointed, it. but I like I'll go with the nickname anyway. The diversion. Let's go back to his motions. Thank you so much for answering that because I know a lot of people were curious.
3: Right. So the motions. um, Great. So uh, there's a few other motions um one is this motion to suppress search warrant evidence uh we learned from this motion that in july uh Fulton County judge signed off on a search warrant to uh to Chesbro's Microsoft email account um, and that that warrant was subsequently executed and and presumably uh documentary evidence was received from that search warrant um they his legal team now wants to suppress suppress that evidence. They make the argument um, that the evidence should be suppressed because there is a Georgia statute that places some, you know, protective limits on searches and and seizures of evidence in the possession of attorneys. Um, And, you know, the reason for that is that you want to be really careful about protecting attorney-client privilege information. Uh, So this, this statute sets out some limits around you know, what has to happen when you search an attorney's uh, a, a documents, right? Um, so they say that the statute wasn't followed and that therefore Ch- Chesbro's, um, the evidence uh, obtained from Chesbro. Bro should be suppressed, um, but the problem for for Chesbro here is that the statute specifically only applies to attorneys who are not criminal suspects. Um,
0: so, oops! <laughs> oops! <laughs>
3: yeah. So and it literally says that in the statute, and and they try to you know in a footnote they point this out and they try to say that well actually you know the district attorney can't say that Chesbro was a sub su- suspect then because he never received a target letter and you know there was never any indication that he was a suspect but in Georgia they actually don't use target letters the way that you would in in the federal system so I, I just don't think that that is going to fly in terms of an argument um, and it's it's clear that you know Chesbro has been a potential suspect for some time it 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 seems like um it just is not going it's going to be a non-starter in terms of making this argument that you know at the time the the search warrant was issued he wasn't a suspect um so and then beyond that motion oh right we have another motion in which he um challenges the uh, rico charge on grounds that he says that the indictment does not allege a pecuniary gain motive on the, on the part of the enterprise. Um, so just to explain that a little bit, um, in, in Georgia, you know, there, we have this racketeering statute, um, and when it was passed, the, the legislature also passed this statement of, legislative intent. And it kind of sets out, you know, how the legislature intended the RICO statute to apply. And one of the lines in that statement, which I should, I should specify like a statement of legislative intent is not uh, you know the statutory the code law, itself right. It's not the law it's just you know A statement that says like this is what We wanted whenever we Passed this law and this is why we passed It or that sounds kind like something
0: thing. you could raise on appeal Like down the road to Have somebody right. interpret this statute Right but yeah okay right
3: yes Exactly it's kind of like if maybe a judge Would look at it when they're interpreting the Statute itself right Um. so In that in that uh, statement The legislature wrote that You know s- something about The, the process, the law was passed uh, to. Kind of criminalize uh, these enterprises that are motivated by you know pecuniary gain and then later on it was amended to say that it also uh, you know was intended to target uh, criminal enterprises that are motivated by you know physical threat or uh you know uh, that kind of thing so it has to be like pecuniary gain or, or physical threat or, or physical injury that is kind of motivating or or um is the is the outcome come or in result of the criminal enterprise and chesbro's team is saying nothing in the indictment here that's about the trump campaign and about efforts to overturn the 2020 election nothing here goes to the question of any kind of you know pecuniary gain resulting from this conduct or or being you know motivating uh the conduct
0: narrator yes it does
3: (laughs) yeah and you know i you're right. It it yes, it does because we know from you know the January 6th committee, we know from various other uh reports that the Trump campaign was using these claims of fraud to raise money. The Save America PAC has been a huge source of Pecuniary gain for Donald Trump to fund his legal defenses. So, and, you know, there's a question here about whether or not the indictment says those things. So it, there might be some kind of argument that maybe. If it's the case that Georgia law does require uh, some kind of pecuniary gain or, or result or or motivate the enterprise, maybe at the at, at one end of the spectrum, it could be that Fonnie Willis has to do a superseding indictment, right when which it's actually specifies that there there were these, financial incentives and and results that came from these claims of election fraud and attempts to overturn the election but I just don't think that the court is going to go for this idea that a RICO prosecution has to include some kind of you know pecuniary gain or motive because it it it's it's not the law. It's it's just a statement of legislative intent.
0: Well, does it have to be straight up money, or can it be something of value? Because retaining the presidency and your chief of staff job would certainly have value attached to it, I would think. Uh, if you couldn't, if you had to, I mean, I guess she could just cure this by doing, like you said, the superseding indictment to incu- include the fundraising off the big lie. But I mean, you know, it's not just about cash or you know gold bars in your jacket pockets or whatever hey who among (laughs) us
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's and I think that's absolutely right and there is, and I need to look into this a little bit more, but you know I, I'm aware of at least one Rico prosecution that involved um, a person you know trying to stay in office. and I don't know the particular details of that prosecution. and I I, I don't I don't think that this particular question was raised in in that case, but it is it, it I point to it to say, that you know there are examples of uh you know RICO enterprises that were motivated towards keeping someone in office that have been prosecuted in Georgia law in the past and and there it seems to be that there was no question in in those cases and, or in that case that you know that was something that the law was intended to apply to so you know, we'll see what happens, but I just don't think Judge McAfee is going to um, be very impressed by this argument.
2: Yeah, and Allison, I know, I know you want to talk about Linwood. Do you, Anna? Before we go to that, do you think this happens October 23rd, or do you think it's going to get pushed back?
3: I do think that it happens. Uh, so I think. It probably will happen uh, October 23rd, which is a little bit surprising to me because I never thought we would be here uh, saying that a trial would actually happen in a month. Um, I thought it would be at least a year. Um, It will be somewhat astonishing if it does happen, but at this point in time, I... My understanding is that the defense team for Chesbro is very motivated to actually make it happen. Um, I I do understand, though, as well, based on you know comments that they've made at a hearing that based on what happens with some of these motions that we've just discussed, it could be the case that they seek an interlocutory appeal on some of those motions. So that basically means that, you know, they're trying to go to the appeals court and get this uh, issue litigated and resolved before the trial is is even happening, right? And, and that in Georgia is a discretionary appeal. So Judge McAfee doesn't have to allow it. But if he does, then that means that the speedy trial demand is told. So while that appeal is ongoing, you know, the clock kind of stops. And then it may be that it's several weeks or potentially even several months before those appeals are exhausted, um, which could, you know, delay things significantly. Um, And that would be both. But even if only Chesbro or only Powell files for an interlocutory appeal because they are together in the case, then it means that the clock would be paused for both of them. So both of the trials would be on hold.
2: And those appeals go to the Georgia Supreme Court?
3: To the Georgia Court of Appeals okay. first, um, okay. and and then to the Georgia Supreme Court, um, depending on the outcome and and what happens. But like I said, it's discretionary. So Judge McAfee doesn't have to let them, um, you know, appeal. He he could, you know, say nope, sorry, um, and then it's something that they, you know, would raise later on. I'm sure, but. Um, Uh, so we'll see, but I think it's happening. And I think judge McAfee is really motivated to get jury selection done by November 5th. That it's, that will be shocking as well if it actually happens, but it seems like he's a extreme. I mean, I've been extremely impressed by judge McAfee. He seems like a really competent jurist and he's been moving things along. So I think it's happening.
0: (laughs) Wow. Um, yeah. And you know, he, uh, that's interesting that it meant that, that he has the discretion on those interlocutory appeals. And, and that also, you know, it could toll things because I was wondering how it worked down in Georgia, because I know how it works federally. But I was like, are tolls allowed in the speedy trial? Because I know it says it has to be done by not this, but the next court, you know, session and all the, uh, you know, all these other things. But no, it's interesting that they can toll it if if the judge Allows those appeals to go forward. We'll have to see. But yeah, he does seem motivated. I was watching the hearing, we all were on television when he was like, November 5th, keep your panel of jury questions to a limited time, you know, uh, know, like almost like at a comedy show. I'm going to give you the light, you know, at a certain amount of time so we can get through all of this and and get a jury seated. So it'll be interesting to see how fast that goes. All right, let's talk uh, about uh, Lynn Wood because everybody was like, Oh, my God, Linwood flipped. And, and then, you know, I was like, mm, I don't know if that's really true. Uh, what what do you what can you tell us about what's going on? Because I think it was sort of buried in a filing that he was uh, going to be a witness for the government in this case. Um, so what do you take away from that?
3: Yeah, so you're right. It came out in a filing. Fonnie Willis's team filed this motion saying that, you know, it's possible that some of these defense attorneys have potential conflicts because they've previously represented people who will be witnesses for the state in the upcoming trial. And, and it was in that motion that they said, you know, so-and-so attorney represented Lynn Wood and, or, or was co-counsel to Lynn Wood. Um, and, and he is a witness for the state in, in the trial that's coming up in October. Um, so I look, we all know that Lynn Wood would be, A terrible witness. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, this is a man who, if you, I mean, talk about impeaching a witness, this is a guy who would truly be, it seems like he would be incredibly easy to impeach in, in terms of, I mean, he just... He, he, There's so many problems or potential problems with putting him on a stand and and expecting a jury to um, expecting him to be a star witness. So I just don't think that he is. Kind of, Lynn Wood is going to be the um, key witness in the state's case. And he himself on Telegram has been saying for days now that he has not flipped on Trump. He's still talking about how he how much he loves Trump and how great Trump is. And he does say, though, that he was subpoenaed to appear at Powell. He says it's Powell's trial, of course, because Powell's being tried with Ken Chesbro. Um, It's it's both of their trials, technically but he says that he was subpoenaed to appear in the Powell trial. He does. He says he does not know what he has been subpoenaed for um, or why. It could be a few things. Like I said, I don't think he's going to be the state's main witness. But what I do know is that during the special grand jury investigation, uh, in, it, that's the grand jury that kind of investigated the 2020 election case for seven months, Wood did testify before the special grand jury, He also, you know, is a figure who has knowledge about some of those early discussions around the 2020 election and and what uh, the Trump campaign team was planning. He hosted people like Sidney Powell, um, people like Patrick Byrne, uh, you know, various figures within the Trump campaign at his plantation in November of 2020. 2020 after the election and we also know from the january 6 committee transcripts that it was there that they first started discussing you know how to access voting machines and of course Sidney Powell is charged with computer trespass and, and a variety of other um, computer-related crimes for her involvement in the Coffee County voting machine access plot. So it, it could be that there's some kind of limited, uh, you know, knowledge or testimony that Lynn Wood is, is willing to appear and testify truthfully to, but like I said, I'm a little bit skeptical that the state is going to uh, rely on him as kind of a crucial witness, and so one of the other reasons why he might be uh, called to testify is simply to serve as, uh, you know, an authentication witness. So that's what
0: I was thinking.
3: Yeah. So in the rules of evidence, as you guys are aware, um, you know, often if you have documents or papers or or, or video or something like that, um, you know, you have to. Authent- Authenticate it to get into into evidence. That means you have to prove that it's you know genuine or um, you know that it is actually what the state says it is. And and so Lynn Wood could be someone who uh, you know the state just puts on the stand in order to authenticate or say that a document really is what they say it is, so that they can get it into evidence. It seems much more likely that if he is put on the stand, it is for that really limited purpose. Um, um, and with that said, also important to say that, you know, witness lists are not always, you know, definite. The state often puts people on their witness list and then they don't call them. So it could be a situation where, you know, he's on there and then he's not called. So we'll see.
2: Yeah. And so I remember, too, that I think uh, Joe Flynn, who's my Flynn's brother, um, took to Twitter and called Lynn after this news came out, took to Twitter and called him a rat. He deleted the tweet. Then he reposted the tweet. And I remember there was a lot of drama at some point that, you know, people recording other people within this group of that plantation crowd of Patrick Byrne, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood. Is there a, is there an antagonism or a split that between Flynn and Lynn Wood that generated that that sort of you know outburst from uh, from Joe Flynn?
3: I, You know, it seems like there is. I'm not sure what the precise circumstances are behind that split. I, there's a lot of um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of beef between a lot of those folks like, uh, you know, there's the Lynn Wood and and Michael Flynn apparent uh, beef, and then there's also you know Lynn and Sydney they have had a falling out, and and Lynn, you know when he's been questioned uh, after the 2020 election about his involvement in some of the suits, he always says, oh it was just Sydney who roped me into that, and I didn't have anything to do with it, and she just put my name on it, and all this kind of stuff, and and then of course Giuliani and Powell, you know, just totally disdain each other. so it's it's just a it's a mess. Um, and and it will be interesting to see how some of those interpersonal dynamics potentially play out in the trial. Yeah.
0: Yes, bag of rats, we like to say. So um any final thoughts, anything else you want to add? We've got about a minute left. I just wanted to know if there was anything else you wanted to make sure that we knew going into this week.
3: Something that I think is going to be really interesting this week is, um, you know, we've had all these severance motions that that happen, And of course, the big group of 17 were split from uh, Powell and Chesbro. And when Judge McAfee ordered that split, he said, you know, basically anyone who doesn't want to be included with Chesbro and Powell on October 23rd, you need to file a waiver of your speedy trial demand. And so that means basically, you know, that they are, that a defendant will say like, I'm not gonna try to get a speedy trial demand under the statute that allows for it under Georgia law. Um, But interestingly, what he said is that, you know, anyone who hasn't done so, uh or filed that waiver by you know x date uh is automatically going to join the the powell and chesbro (laughs) trial and you have to opt out (laughs) yeah you have to opt, opt out and we have seen that there are three people i think it's three i need to check this but i think it's mike roman john eastman and misty hampton who have not filed waivers yet and i think that mcafee said in that order he would revisit the question of any other severance uh, issues or kind of the these issues with the speedy trial demand by uh, September 29th. Um, so I'm I'm I have my eye on whether or not there might it might not just be state of Georgia versus Ken Chesbro and City Powell. It could end up being you know a few other people who are thrown in there um, if they don't file their speedy trial waivers. So we'll see.
0: Great. Well, I know Pete has to run. Pete has a hit, I think, coming up on MSNBC. But I did want to also mention before we go to a break that um, there were hearings for removal to federal court, both for Jeffrey Clark and for three of the fraudulent electors. They, I, I, they didn't go well. I don't think they're going to be successful. Um, but we're, we're waiting for those uh, to drop too. Uh, Anna Bauer, thank you so much Absolutely. for coming on. Thank Absolutely. you. Yeah. Thanks Every- so much. Everybody find Anna Bauer on social media. Check out her work at Lawfare. She covers all manner of justice news. It's well worth the follow. Thank you again so much for helping explain everything going on in Fulton County. Yep.
2: And love to have you back as trial start. And if God forbid we actually are uh, knee deep in trial in a month's time, I'd love to <laughs> love you have you back on either now, then, or whenever to to talk about it as it unfolds you're going to be covering everything down in uh, Fulton County
3: I will be there I hope uh, they say it's going to be four months we'll see (laughs) so um (laughs) but I'll be there
2: nice nice well thank you
3: bye everyone
0: thank you bye and everybody we'll be right back and we have more after this quick break everybody stick around Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have a few more patrons to thank. New signups, including Don O'Brien, Praveen Segal, Anne Sullivan Frome, Ed Ingber, Michael Murphy, comb-over-hair Stormy, and Carol Bilergian. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. But thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate all you do to make this show happen. All right, let's jump to Rudy, because to put it bluntly, he's fucked. Man, Pete, I haven't used that clip <laughs> since the Mueller days. But it's really appropriate here. By the way, that is from the Voices of the People Choir, which is a, a choir made up of uh, houseless, the unhoused in San Diego. And they raised money. They, they made it to America's Got Talent um, after we featured them on our Mueller She Wrote podcast. But it was time to bring that back. So this is from the filing from Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss last week. Plaintiffs, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, by and through their counsel, hereby notify the court of defendant Rudolph Giuliani's failure to comply with the court's order of August 30th, 2023, granting plaintiffs motion for discovery sanctions of here going forward, known as the sanctions order and for the court's information. State the following. First of all, number one, the sanctions order ordered the defendant Giuliani to take or cause the Giuliani businesses to take certain actions by September 20th, including producing complete responses to the plaintiff's request for production, um, numbers 40 and 41. So those two specific things. Uh, Also, to ensure that Giuliani Communications, LLC, and Giuliani Partners, LLC, those are the two businesses that combined own two turntables and a microphone only, collectively known as the Giuliani businesses, produce complete responses to the plaintiff's request for financial documents and viewership metrics, (laughs) viewership metrics, including RFP numbers 19 and 35, that's request for production numbers 19 and 35, and designate one or more corporate representatives to sit for depositions on behalf of the Giuliani businesses. Basically, you you need to sit down and answer questions about whether or not you really only have a, a couple of microphones. Also, They were supposed to reimburse plaintiff's attorney's fees and costs associated with their successful first motion to complete discovery in the amount totaling $89,172.50 and to ensure by September 20th that Giuliani businesses reimburse the plaintiff's attorney's fees associated with their successful motion to compel discovery from the businesses in the amount totaling about $42,600 plus interest on that amount to accrue from September 30th against defendant Rudy Giuliani personally. Uh, if his businesses fail to timely comply. And finally, as of this date, Defendant Giuliani has failed to take any of the actions or to cause the Giuliani businesses to take any of the actions so ordered in that sanctions order. What do you think about this, Pete? Yeah,
2: I mean, look, Rudy is, I think you're right, he's fucked. I don't know that there's any way that he's got enough money, and we'll talk a little bit about more demands on his money that have come down the pike uh, since we last talked about it. But keep in mind, these are not, this is not. Any of the damages that are going to come about as a result of the defamation that there was that, you know, the guilty verdict from the bench that was found when that trial comes in December. These are pre-existing penalties for his essentially failing to play by the rules of the game as a, you know, as a defendant, as a as a longtime attorney, as a former federal prosecutor and U.S. attorney, his utter disregard. For the criminal justice system and his obligations to produce discovery, which was so bad that the judge said, look, I'm awarding you all of these attorney fees, you know, some total of whatever that is, one hundred and thirty some odd thousand dollars just for your bad behavior in the conduct of the civil trial. So this isn't even this doesn't even address anything that he may and likely will, in my opinion, get ordered to pay as a result of defaming. Um. Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. This is just the his bad behavior along the way. So I don't, I, you know, for, for uh, it's Judge like Howell- a, It's like
0: Armageddon. We aren't even in outer space yet. We're just in the beginning <laughs> part of space.
2: <laughs> right. And it's already bad. And oh, by the way, you, you continued having already like screwed around with the judge, having already incurred her ire. You were doing nothing but- you know, this this pot which is simmering, if not boiling, you're just doubling down and turning up the temperature on it. So at some point, I, you know, we, we, we joked about it a little bit, but I can honestly see if Rudy keeps down this path, he may be the first person imprisoned out of all this crew just by his sheer refusal to abide by the court's orders. Because, again, part of what the court can do. And, you know, they've already levied financial, uh, you know, penalties, but there's some indication that Rudy's saying at least he doesn't have any money. You can you can start doubling fines for, for Elon Musk or for Donald Trump, but when it comes to Rudy, he doesn't have a lot of money. At some point, those penalties might turn from financial ones into physical liberty ones, and that wouldn't be unusual. I mean, that's not unheard of of people who are recurringly, Contemptuous of their obligations to a court and the orders of the court to find their ass hauled in and put in jail. So, you know, do I think that is imminent? Uh, no. Do I think Rudy is, you know, more than kind of a, you know, it's a serious discussion that we can have about is he potentially facing uh, cont- jail time as a result of contempt? Yeah. I think we're at the point of being able to talk about that without it being some sort of pie in the sky thing.
0: Yeah. In fact, it's so not unheard of, that we ha- We might have gotten a preview of what could happen to Rudy down in Florida recently. Pete, we had uh, Roger Stone associate and Proud Boys adjacent guy, Jacob Engels. Who just had a, a a bodily whatever put out on him? Arrest for a warrant for his arrest. <laughs> I was going to say
2: that's that's what happens after he gets into the prison
0: yard. <laughs> no, you're talking <laughs> for, about something uh, else. Never, never. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the cavity search, right? No, but for uh, for contempt in a defamation case, he refused to produce discovery because somebody you know who was running for office down there um, is suing him for defamation. And uh, he refused to produce discovery, and now there's a warrant out for his arrest for contempt. Uh, so he is uh, on the lam; he is a wanted fugitive now uh, for for contempt of court. And I, I immediately thought of Rudy because this is a discovery defamation case order that he has failed time and again um, to to respond to. And now you can add the fact that he was supposed to pay sanctions and have somebody sit down from the Rudy businesses. And talk about what they're worth uh, and be deposed in, in that way. And he was supposed to do that five days ago, and they have nothing. So this is a no. it's, it's a notice, basically. It's like a, hey, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, judge. Uh, Rudy hasn't done anything. Yeah. Uh, neither have his businesses. So I could see this not going well for him because, as you said, the judge is already, like, done. Right. <laughs> and, and And the
2: judgment's already been entered, and all of this... All of this is based on, Rudy's not stupid. His attorney isn't stupid. This is all based on a calculation that whatever it is they're not producing, his financials, other discovery, whatever in there is so bad that they judge a better outcome is simply to ignore the discovery obligations and ignore providing some expert to talk about his financial status. That that information that has not been turned over as required by law is ordered by the court. It is so horrible. That they would sooner risk this contempt, the summary judgment, getting thrown in jail or other sanctions, rather than turn this over. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't know at this point, having doubled down at least a couple of times, you know, does he finally come around and turn it over?
0: Well, does he have enough money is the question, because what's our next story? Well,
2: funny funny you mentioned that. So from The Washington Post, Rudy Giuliani's former attorney has filed a lawsuit- against the former New York mayor, alleging that he owes more than $1.3 million in unpaid legal fees. In a legal document filed this last Monday, Robert Costello and his firm, Davidoff, Hutcher & Citroen LLP, said Giuliani had so far paid only $214,000 of what he owed for more than three years of worth of legal representation, leaving $1.36 million outstanding. Now keep in mind, Costello is the same attorney who sued Bannon and won. A judge ordered Bannon to pay Costello nearly $500,000. So, I, you know, my read, this is simply they're seeing the writing on the wall. You know, frequently law firms will yeah, accept that they're going to take a loss, but they are looking at what's going on with uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss saying, hey, if there's a limited pot of Giuliani money, we need to get our suit in because pretty soon the guy's going to be destitute. And frankly, by the way, if anybody out of this entire episode ends up spending the remainder of their life destitute in in, in jail... I, I would not be overly disappointed if that ended up being uh, Rudy Giuliani, given his just appalling behavior.
0: Yeah, yeah. and, you know, I, it, well, first of all, what's Costello thinking? <laughs> like, I, why does he keep representing these people? Well,
2: I, I assume there's money there, right? I mean, he did get that money from Bannon. Bannon is nothing if not a prolific fan. I mean, him. he's a, he's... You know, he's bilking, you know, he up till and in, 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 until he got pardoned by Trump, he was, you know, fleecing, uh, you know, people for various you know, projects that do not appear to have been what he claimed they were, but there's certainly money there. And, you know, wherever Bannon is getting his money, the fact of the matter is that he was able to uh, pay almost, you know, half a million dollars. And Rudy, you know, I don't know that Trump offering to uh, host dinners for him is going to hit that $1.3 million in unpaid legal fees plus. The uh, couple hundred thousand of, or 140 so thousand of existing sanctions, and then whatever's coming out of the, the defamation judgment. But, you know, I, at and this point.
0: don't forget his ex-employer is, is suing him for 10 million as well. Right. Right. And, you know, and and this
2: is is all on top of Rudy just being a fucking utter, sorry, I'm swearing in the main show, just a horrible, (laughs) racist, sexist asshole in going after and not only attacking Cassidy Hutchinson and things that she had said about, you know, Rudy essentially filling her up on January, not essentially, let's call it what it is, sexually assaulting her on January 6th. But then he goes after any number of other people, from Olivia Troy to uh, Dunphy. I, you're right, to Dunphy, to just a bunch of uh, you know folks, largely women, who he proceeds to slander and say horrible things about. So it, it just none of this could happen to a more deserving person, and he just keeps, you know, the the first rule: if you're in a hole, stop digging. Not Rudy, not Rudy. By God, he is churning away, digging to the sin of the earth.
0: Agreed. And we want to thank the Voices of the People Choir for articulating just how fucked he is. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be right back with some sad trombones for House Republicans, along with the status of the New York Attorney General fraud case, which was set to begin October 2nd. Stay with us.
1: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back. Now it's time to thank our Hall of Fame patrons. You are amazing. Thank you so much to backdropbooks.com. Another Minneapolis, Minneapolis, excuse me, Sloan Russell, Kirkland J. Bateman. Uh, I'm fast at sex and my new partner agreed to train me so I can get even faster. Three exclamation points. I am no longer in a shout out mood. I'm sorry. And I'm a trash bag from Arizona. Thank you so much um, for for being Hall of Fame patrons. I appreciate you all very much. You make this show run. Uh, And uh, one quick story I wanted to kind of sandwich in here, uh, Pete, before we get to the New York Attorney General, uh, is that we now have multiple IRS and FBI uh, testimony or, you know, testimonials in front of the House uh, behind closed doors in the Hunter Biden probe that are disputing Shapley's um, contention. That David Weiss, who investigated Hunter Biden for five years, did not have full authority uh, to bring charges. And this is a new testimony from CNN. A number of FBI and Internal Revenue Service officials, a number, multiple, have now cast doubt on key claims from Shapley. According to transcripts provided to CNN, several FBI and IRS officials brought in for closed-door testimony by House Republicans said they don't remember that U.S. Attorney David Weiss had ever said that he lacked the authority to decide whether to bring charges against the president's son or that Weiss said he had been denied request for special counsel status. Uh, Those claims made by Gary Shapley form the whole foundation of Republican accusations that the Justice Department's investigation into Biden was tainted by political influence. So just to name a couple here, we have, of course, Soboczynski or Sobachinsky, excuse me, however uh, I, f- I feel like you pronounce it Soboczynski. Somebody sent me a correction. We also have uh, someone named Holly and then somebody else from the IRS. Um, they're all they're all named in this CNN article. And I really just encourage everybody to read this because Holly said, I remember overall charges for being a conversation in the sense that it's something that they're all still deciding. I don't remember if it was stated at this meeting that it was not that those tax years were not going to be charged. I just know that, again, those tax years and others were part of overall discussions. And uh, we also have a couple more people, you know, saying that um, they were under the complete understanding, somebody named Walden. He says, I didn't understand that the case was declined, just that they weren't going to partner on the case. Um, but, But that case would still be able to move forward, which is part of the process, which is a note that Shapley specifically took during that October 7th, 2022 meeting. So all now there are multiple people, not just Soboczynski, who are basically disputing uh, Shapley's testimony. Shapley, who was removed from the case, by the way, um, by the IRS. So everything's falling apart.
2: Yeah. And that, look, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, anytime you have a meeting with that many people, do do p- different people hear different nuances of things? Sure. Do some people mishear things and over the period of time think something was said that wasn't a course? You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is I think it isn't – it is not at all surprising that after doubling down on their statements that both Weiss as well as Merrick Garland would be providing – one, a consistent statement between the or a version of events between the two of them. And now you've got any number of people who are saying, yeah, that is in fact what happened. And what I'm really interested to see, I think there's, you know, now with potentially Hunter Biden cases headed to trial instead of a plea agreement, I think there's a very, very real chance that discovery is going to turn up some potentially very interesting things because there are a lot of the swirling rumor and we've talked about it on the on the pod before the swirling rumors about concerns about where information was being leaked from who might be leaking it the concern that uh, you know some of the Shapley and others might have material that they failed to turn over to prosecutors and only after you know several months of being asked about it they eventually did I am curious to see at the end of the discovery process for hunter biden what information might exist out there which may further sort of color or provide um more information about the credibility of all the different witnesses who are now out there talking about what did or didn't happen but look bottom line it's crap uh, the the entire allegations of the you know the weaponization committee just like we found there's a you know we'll we'll Talk about it on the bonus – well, or maybe on the bonus episode, but um, some some conversation with uh, Petro Poroshenko talking to Fox News, essentially saying that all these allegations coming from Shokin, that essentially Shokin – there's something wrong with him. He's a crazy person, utterly undermining some yeah. of the, you know, the, the deepest of the, you know, Hunter Biden Burisma, uh, you know, President, Vice President Biden conspiracies, completely undermining one of the key people in that, one of the key interlocutors with Rudy Giuliani. So it's all crap. It's all crap.
0: Yeah. There just
2: is nothing there.
0: And, you know, we still haven't seen any tax charges. From David Weiss, and and uh, he's got to be weighing like he was pretty. He he went to paper. He wrote letters uh, m- on multiple occasions saying I had full authority. You know, I just had to follow a process. I had to go see if I could partner with the local U.S. attorneys, and then if they didn't, I had to ask for a five fifteen or for special counsel status. I followed the process. It's ridiculous, but there are no tax charges, and I know David Weiss has to be weighing discovery in any tax case and how the 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 case would just get blown up apart because of the chain of custody of all the evidence and the and the public hearings and and uh, testimony public testimony from these whistleblowers uh, you know he has to that that's where the prosecutorial discretion comes in right like do I really want to bring these charges for a un- hundred thousand in unpaid taxes to go through discovery on this no I think it would give the DOJ a black eye it would certainly give uh, the whole investigation into Biden, uh, Hunter Biden, a black eye. And, uh, you know, we might not see for that reason any tax charges brought. I guarantee you that the Republicans on the House committee do not want a tax charge trial because it will expose, like you said, all of this complete and total bullshit.
2: Yeah. And right. look, I, I've, I've said all along if Hunter Biden is guilty or they can prove and demonstrate evidence of violations of law that are consistent with having brought cases in the past. On yeah, similar it. cases, then do it. But if you're going to bring you know tax charges, let's talk about you know Roger Stone. He and his wife agreed to a two million dollar settlement in a tax case back in you know mid mid last year. How how different is that than this? Two million
0: dollars And Stone settlements. It's like 10 times as much money.
2: You know, <laughs> let, let's let's talk about all these other you know like Paul Manafort. Let's talk about all these folks who have had allegations of unpaid federal taxes. The Trump organization and where right where. Mm. Where has DOJ brought charges and where haven't they? And let's line that up with the amount and fact pattern surrounding Hunter Biden when it comes to tax charges. That's all. And if DOJ has prosecuted cases like that in the past at the level of what Hunter Biden did, then, you know, if they can prove it, they should bring charges. By all means. But if not, if you got, you know, the, the great unindicted Roger Stone for $2 million, agreeing to a, you know, out of court settlement, then, you know, maybe let's, let's be, let's be consistent about this. Consistency. And of course, you know, nobody, nobody in the Republican House is, and that's just, you know, the crap we got to put up, put up with and, yeah. and sort through.
0: Yeah, totally true. And then, and then maybe investigate why um, there weren't uh, federal charges filed against Roger Stone uh, during that time. And is that what It's a mystery. It's a, it's mm. a mystery,
2: Allison. What I could it understand. be? I don't understand.
0: Yeah. All right. So uh, what's going on uh, over in New York? Yeah. So like,
2: look, so in New York, an appellate court temporarily paused Trump's New York civil fraud trial, which is set to begin soon, like, you know, October 2nd. So next week. And the attorney general's office told the judges that failing to reverse course could come with serious consequences. Judith Vail, who is the deputy solicitor general for New York Attorney General Letitia James, wrote in a 32 page filing on Wednesday, quote, Even a brief stay of the October 2 trial date would likely wreak havoc on the trial schedule, not only in this proceeding, but also in scheduled trials in other courts that involve petitioner Donald J. Trump. The court should not countenance such delays, particularly when there is no irreparable harm to petitioners from simply doing work to prepare for and start a trial that has been scheduled for many months, unquote. Now, the current trial may still happen if the appellate judges decide to uphold the rulings of Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Arthur Ingeron. And, you know, Ingeron, at least in in the hearing last week, was, was animated at some point going after some of Trump's attorneys about, you know, their assertion about, well, you know, everybody lies a little when it comes to valuations and you know calling them a little bit to the carpet saying no that that's you know a, a little bit is right pounded he pounded the desk of the bench right so you know if that's any indication of kind of where his mind is at we'll see but again this is <laughs> there is so much we talked I think last last episode about how trump is reaching a critical mass you can kick so many cans down the road for so long but at some point they all sort of come crashing together all at once and all this right. is, we're starting to see that, right? Uh, you Cause know, this, this
0: trial would end right around, right before the holidays, right before Christmas time, or, you know, around that, the holiday season there, I guess, mid December. And if it gets delayed at all, that pushes it into next year. And in January, we have E. Jean Carroll. In February, we have the Pyramid Scheme. In March, we have. Um, most likely uh, Judge Chutkin in the D.C. trial. And I think that Manhattan Bragg, Manhattan uh, D.A. Alvin Bragg, who was set to go in March, conferred with uh, Judge Chutkin and has agreed to sort of step back from that. And then in May, you've got the documents. Like, it's... you. So you're now, much crime. <laughs> you're now, yeah. <laughs> you're now pushing this trap. It's like, hey, man, if you had only done this one crime, yeah, we could probably delay this, <laughs> delay this a little bit. But we can't. And I think that that's the point that the Solicitor General in New York there is is making. All right. Next up from Jacqueline Alamany at The Post. Late last month, Republican lawmakers requested that the National Archives turn over a series of documents dating to Joe Biden's tenure as vice president. This is part of their ongoing investigation, the House GOP, to try to find evidence that Biden used his office to help his son Hunter's business affairs. Now, in that request, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer alleged that the documents would show extensive coordination between Joe and Hunter Biden in Ukraine, where Hunter Biden served, as we know, on the, on the board of Burisma. And there would be damaging evidence that the then vice president used his official perch to enrich his family. Now, Comer told Newsmax, quote, you're going to see a lot of Democrats hit the panic button when we get mm. those emails <laughs> uh, um, from the National Archives. Uh, but cue the sad trombone. Womp womp. On Thursday, staff members of the House Oversight Committee were briefed Staff members, by the way, no actual congressmen were there. The staff members were briefed on the first set of documents the archives has prepared to respond to the request, four emails that revealed the Biden family scheduling, a humorous exchange about Biden's status as a New Georgian sex symbol, and praise from the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine for Joe Biden's other son, Bo, who, as we know, has since died. And that's according to people with knowledge of the document's contents. Uh, none of the emails were related to Hunter Biden's work on the board of Burisma. Thursday's episode provided the latest example of documents and testimony that House Republicans have chased down only to discover they did not substantiate any allegations that Biden benefited from Hunter's business dealings or used his office to assist them. Of course, the Republicans are accusing the archives now of withholding the important documents. Yeah, of
2: course. Right.
0: Oh, and 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 they and like I said, they weren't even at the hearing. How many of these behind closed door testimonies has Comer and Jordan have Comer and Jordan just not shown up for? Because they know what they're doing. It's all performative BS.
2: Yeah, and at some point, I mean, two, two points to this. One, all of us are paying for this, right? These are congressmen and their staff who are paid for by U.S. taxpayers. So all of this nonsense, all of this performance art, all of these empty gestures that everybody knows, including Comer and Jordan and their staff, everybody knows before they even start them that they are performance art, that nothing is going to come of them. They nevertheless go ahead and do it. And I've got a question, like for for those people, and there's some indication that they're, you know former fbi agents who are working for uh, for jordan and or the weaponization committee how how do you go into work every day and take a paycheck for this sort of nonsense at some point do you ever become concerned about the things that you're doing and the nonsense that you're following at some point, do you worry at all, not only about Jim Jordan and James Comer's credibility, but about your own? But no, nevertheless, we, we charged down and now, oh, NARA's holding it. It's, they're part of, you know, they're in on it. They must be because of the whole Mar-a-Lago process. They're part of, they've been co-opted by the deep state. So it, it must be a NARA problem. No, it's not. It's not. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Absolutely yeah. zero.
0: And that these House Republicans, specifically folks like Jim Jordan, are continuing to take a paycheck to chase down these ghosts while getting ready to shut down the government and stop paying our active duty service members, for example, Uh, is just egregious. It's absolutely egregious. Yeah. The hypocrisy is uh, stunning. But, you know, again... We are shocked, but not surprised. Uh,
2: So I do have, if we go back to the uh, New York AG, some breaking news in the form of Donald J. Trump bleats over in uh, Truth Social, and if you, I can, I can read them for just a couple hours ago. He starts out, "I have been unfairly sued. I'm not going to try and do a horrible Trump accent, but the Trump-hating Democrat (laughs) Attorney General of New York State, Letitia James." Over the false fact that I inflated my financial statements in order to borrow money from banks, etc. The judge in the case, Arthur F. Engeron, refused to allow this case to go to the, quote, commercial division, unquote, where it belongs because he is a Trump hater even beyond A.G. James, who campaigned against me spewing horrible inflammatory statements which are capital false and capital defamatory. I'm not even allowed a jury. The facts of this case are simple. And Then Grandpa hits the caps lock. One, I am worth much more than the numbers shown on my financial statements. Two, I didn't even include my most valuable asset, my brand. Three, the banks were paid back in full sometimes yes, early. Yes, were did. And there that's were illegal. No defaults. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking that Donald Trump may be not telling the entire truth here. There were no defaults. The banks made money, were represented by the best law firms, and were very, quote, unquote, happy. There were no victims for on the front page of the financial statements. There is a strong quote unquote disclaimer clause telling all not to rely on these. Fin- this is second bleat, page two, financial statements, still all caps. The disclaimer clause tells anyone reviewing the data, including financial institutions, to do their own research and analysis. It is a non-reliance clause and could not be more clear. I don't know what a non-reliance clause is, but my attorneys gave it to me to put it in this bleat. Obviously. Doesn't say that. Additionally, to my being worth far more than is shown in the, quote, fully disclaimed, unquote, financial statements, again, not putting down a value for my biggest asset, brand, the company has hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and very little debt. Turn off the caps lock. It is a great company that has been slandered and maligned by this politically motivated witch hunt. It is very unfair, and I call for help from the highest courts in New York state or the federal system to intercede. Again, back on caps lock like, this is not america so that mm. there is there's trump's non attorney non legal filing uh has
0: got about 500 shell companies associated with um the trump organization yes, um none of yes, that indeed. is indicted or you know being uh, sued over but he did actually try to include his brand in the valuations and and that was actually called out as the part brand, of lawsuit. the brand so. allison
2: the brand those fine trump steaks that fine trump <laughs> wine that fine mm. trump university education that brand is so the presidential
0: is, shit trump swag bags they were going to send to georgia yes, electors my, to my, sign my, their life away my
2: <laughs> trump <laughs> nfts my trump challenge coins my trump my merch the brand the brand
0: the, the, <sighs> the one that's been coming down off of buildings since he was elected because yes, nobody yeah. wants it there. That some,
2: one. Somehow allegedly uh, continues to be such a fine vehicle for money laundering, uh, some people say, but, you know, it's the brand, the brand.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that the gold, gold M's and the gold P's from the trump name that were removed from buildings maybe maybe the improv could could buy those and stick them back up on their brick walls and their comedy clubs because you know i mean giant gold gold m's and p's have to be kind of hard to come by i don't think it's in the right (laughs) font though anyway just a thought um you know selling hawking his gold letters to the improv to make legal money that's funny uh, to me and i just uh, have it in my head it's got it I'm on sure, eBay sure. right now.
2: Melania and her H-1B genius visa <laughs> will have some ideas, perhaps, of what to do with those. And just Be just best. leave it to her. Leave it to her.
0: She'll mm. she'll come yeah. up with that. She can use the T in Be Best. Okay. Um, that is our show. Thank you so much. And a huge thanks to Anna Bauer and the incredible work that she's doing on the ground in Fulton County and elsewhere. You know, she's also covering... Uh, Both of the federal, I mean, like pretty much anything that is uh, Trump justice related, she's covering for Lawfare and it was great to have her on for the first couple of segments. So big shout out to her and Lawfare. Please follow her on social media. Uh, any Any final thoughts before we get out of here for the week, my friend?
2: No, thanks to Anna. She's doing amazing work. look forward to future reporting again across the board I, you know she's a rock star down in Fulton County but she's also been doing you know the the work up here in DC. So uh, give her a follow and a listen and thanks for coming on the show. Thank all of you particularly patrons for your support. You make all of these things possible, all these interviews, everything else. So uh, my deep thanks to you as well.
0: Yeah. Patrons, we'll see you this weekend on the bonus episode and everybody else. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much. I've been Allison Gill.
2: And I'm Pete Struck.
0: This has been Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Ile 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit MSWmedia.com. MSW Media.